the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. You've heard about it. You've read about it. Maybe even you yourself uh, as an adult interacting with the Internet, as a lot of us have to do on a day-to-day basis relationship to uh, work and jobs and so forth, uh, have dealt with phishing scams and computer viruses, things of this sort. I'm hoping that a larger percentage, and I'm, I'm guarding my words here because... You see a lot of these so-called 419 scans continue. I get me email and hundreds of them every day. It's always curious to take a day or two off and come back and find a thousand emails in my inbox. Um, a little bit of it is business. Most of it tends to be how I've just won a million dollars in a special lottery. I just need to send over a copy of my passport to collect it or that they've discovered my trunk that contains $2.3 million. And if I can just send a special courier fee to them, they'll be happy to release my money. On and on the list goes. Uh, Nigerian princesses who has uh, had uh, $50 million set in an American account somewhere and their parents have died. But if I'll help them out, I can get half the money if I just help them get the money out of the country. On and on the list goes. You see it, you laugh about it, you delete it, you move on. If you're an older person, particularly those who came up through it a day in an age when relationships, business in particular, were built on trust and relationships um, that perhaps uh, might be less weary of some of these scams that are out there. And whether at the end of the day you're talking about a phishing scam, a computer virus that we accidentally download, or even dating scams, um, older folks, mom and dad, grandma and grandpa, are highly susceptible to this kind of chicanery. In fact, of those seniors who have some familiarity with being online, fully two-thirds of them have been scammed in one way or another. Well, what to do? Joining me, Michael Kaiser, Executive Director of the National Cybersecurity Alliance. And, and Michael, as much and, and as prevalent as all of this is, you, you would think that we would be reaching the point that we'd be sensitized to this enough that we would see scams coming. And it seems like just by the time we figure out what a scam looks like, they come up with a new one. Yeah, well, first, thanks for having me on. And yeah, you know, I mean, the scams take all different forms. And Really, a lot of the scams that you see online today are scams that originated even before the computer was around, right? So sweepstakes scams, those kinds of things that have been around for ages. But the bad guys are not dumb. Um, These are smart criminals, and they continuously uh, change their approach um, in order to get people to share information or to give them money. Um, in ways that are very, very creative. And, it, you know, it's hard to stay on top of it all. 
Um, there's two things that tend to motivate us, fear and greed, and uh, perhaps loneliness, the third, if you're a single senior. And many of these scam artists have learned how to harness all three of those vulnerabilities, haven't they? Yeah, I would also add altruism. Um, we see a lot of charity scams as mm. well. So, yeah, there's a, there's a bunch of different ways. And, and, you know, we call it social engineering, right? That's what it is. And we call it scams and fraud. But what the bad guys are doing is social engineering. They're putting something in front of you um, that um, lights your interest, um, that gets you to act. Uh, in some cases, it may get you to do things that you normally wouldn't do. They may create a sense of panic or fear, right, That's as you mentioned. Um, there's something wrong with an account, there's something wrong with a shipment, um, or of course, you know, on the greed side, we, we have, you know, the Nigerian prince, we have sweepstakes scams, and other kinds of uh, things where people can um, have earned a lot of, you know, earn a lot of money or, or win a lot of money. There's also a degree to which they, they play on maybe our insecurities enough so that they will take, what's the old adage, uh, you know, a little bit of leaven, leaven at the whole loaf, they will take enough of the truth that they will catch our attention. Now, a lot of times when I see these email and I see that, you know, I'm getting the alert from SunTrust Bank that my account has been breached or that there's a, a funny activity going on in my first, third bank account, well, I don't do business with either of those banks. Neither of those banks do business in California where I'm at, and so I immediately know it's bogus. But I might get a email from a bank that does business in California, maybe a bank that I do business with, it seems to be innocuous enough. They've seen some suspicious activity. They're alerting me. And if I'll just go online to confirm my details and innocently, a senior might click on this thinking that it's fully above board and find themselves not at the Bank of America website, but a website that looks an awful lot like it. More than an awful lot like it. It looks almost exactly like it, and that's what makes it really difficult, right? Um, and so, yeah, and that, that is part of the way, um, you know, these things have become more sophisticated over time. You know, 10 years ago, you would get a spammy email with, you know, uh, incorrect grammar, you know, things spelled improperly, um, you know, those kinds of things. And now you get uh, an email that looks like a very legitimate, um, straight from... Uh, a well-trusted brand. I mean, what brands are more trusted than banks in many ways, where people put their money? Um, and, you know, they urge you to act. And that's what you really have to look at. You have to look at what is being asked of you. What is this email requiring that you do? Log into your account? You know, that should raise some suspicion right there. Tell you that there's something, you know, wrong that needs to be corrected right now? That should raise some sus suspicion right there. So there's a, a bunch of different things that you can sort of pay attention to. And, you know, I think, um, uh, you know, we, we like to think sometimes that, oh, you know, sometimes older people, you know, become targets in certain kinds of ways. But older people also have a lot of life experience um, that they bring to the table. And using um, that life experience and their good judgment that they've had for many years can help them um, be defended against a lot of these uh, scams. And as you point out, to be fair, I don't want this to be characterized as well. Um, older Americans are more vulnerable, they're fragile, and, and therefore uh, bigger targets. We're all targets. And these scammers, as you've suggested, Michael, are becoming more 
and more sophisticated, going from the days when, yeah, there was a lot of grammar errors, much misspelling, uh, things just didn't look right, where you could generally spot, okay, this is a bogus site. Today, they're getting sophisticated enough that sometimes they even will buy sound-alike or look-alike URL addresses or URL addresses that are related to a common misspelling that, as a result, will take you to a website that maybe you went to intentionally that you thought was completely legitimate that turns out is not, and they've done it because they're getting more and more sophisticated. Yeah, and I, and I might also point out, too, sort of when you're talking about email scams, right, um, certainly there are probably some that are targeted to older people, but a lot of them are like big direct mail campaigns, right? So they may not even know, you know, the age of the person uh, that the email is going to. So um, they are generally directed toward people, especially these big, broad, sweeping spam-type campaigns. Um, and you're absolutely correct. I mean, also they can spoof, which means, you know, make it look like, right, an email that came from, you know, acmebank.com, right, um, and make those websites look really, really uh, close to uh, the website of the legitimate business. And so um, it's, it can be very difficult for people to really parse out what's real and what's not. And and unfortunately, that makes it difficult for people. There are two areas that they have seemingly perfected in recent years that are targeted not singularly to seniors, but seem to be found very effective towards seniors. Uh, one is scams related to things like your grandson has been arrested, he's overseas, he needs money to bail himself out of jail, things of this sort. And as I mentioned a moment ago, for older folks that perhaps have lost a spouse and they're they're looking for companionship, um, some of the computer dating scams. We'll talk about both of those as we return. Michael Kaiser, Executive Director of the National Cybersecurity Alliance. We're talking um, in a specific sense about um, this kind of tomfoolery that targets vulnerable members of society, but even the broader area where, quite frankly, we can all be um, wisely reminded of just how dangerous it is out there on the Internet and how that we really can never let our guard down. Let's take a brief time out. We'll come back to more of our conversation as Lifeline continues right after this. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to our conversation, Michael Kaiser. We're talking about scams, other online-related nefarious activities that many one of us, quite frankly, could become a victim of. But there is um, evidence to demonstrate that seniors in particular, um, two-thirds of which that have familiarity with being online. Two-thirds of them have been scammed online. Part of it's the trust factor. Part of it is because, as Michael Kaiser suggests, these scammers and con artists are just getting a lot more sophisticated at all of this. Uh, more recently, of course, we've seen a huge rise in things like uh, scams related to uh, the IRS. You owe money. We're going to send the police to uh, uh, to uh, pick you up if you don't uh, send us money immediately. Another one that they will use is calling an elderly individual and saying or emailing saying that I'm the grandson, I'm stuck overseas, and I need some money to help bail me out of jail. Uh, those things come with some great degree of frequency these days, don't they? Yeah, I mean, really, the, the, the scam volume is just tremendous. I mean, and even with, you know, 
the highly sophisticated tools that the email providers use, and they get uh, and you know root out like probably you know somewhere between you know 98 and 99 percent of all the scam messages that are out there. Still, a big number that one percent that gets through or two percent is just a large volume. I mean, we all see them, right? We get you know many of us probably get a couple of them a day that look kind of suspicious, um, and uh, you know probably have our antenna up about whether this is a real email or fake. You mentioned things like sweepstakes. Certainly there's a hesitancy there because, gee, free money and, you know, why why wouldn't Ed McMahon want to send me $100,000? But there are other ways in which we can become victims to this. And as you've suggested, Michael, this is not something in terms of vulnerability that is unique to uh, uh, retirees or senior citizens in America. Easy things, simple things like a home network router where your wireless router, you just bought the thing, installed it, never bothered to put a password in. You're using the default password that who could ever guess 1234 would be the access. And yet um, scammers out there driving around in your neighborhood can uh, see which wireless networks are unprotected, log in, commit crimes using your Internet connection, and then when the FBI shows up at the door, you're going to have to answer for it. Yeah, I mean, there, there are certainly those kinds of attacks that happen, and, and um, especially if the people want to engage in, you know, some kind of nefarious act. And, I mean, in the harshest, worst cases, you know, you might see cases of people hijacking people's routers to do things like child pornography or something like that, which could really, um, you know, cause a tremendous uh, amount of pain in a lot of different kinds of ways for folks. Um, and then no one wants to see that kind of activity happening under their name, right? And that also happens, you know, straight out with identity theft as well, right? So stealing someone's identity and then going on and using their identity, you know, to create um, accounts, uh, to perhaps, you know, apply for credit cards, to um, try and access different kinds of uh, accounts that might have money in them and steal them. So, yeah, um, you know, we live in in a world where their Internet is uh, not built on perfect security, unfortunately. And the identity theft issue, go a little bit deeper on that, if you would, because it's not just one thing to say, be wary of emails, don't go to a site that's a phony site. You could go to a site that seems to be completely innocuous and harmless, click on something, or click on a attachment in an email, maybe just out of curiosity or by accident, you thought you recognized the sender and said, family vacation pictures, clicked on the attachment before you really realized what it was that you were looking at, inadvertently downloaded spyware onto your computer, that's now capturing every keystroke that you make. And can't they oftentimes use that kind of data, Michael, to be able to go back and essentially uh, capture passwords and log in information and suddenly get involved in your accounts, let alone stealing your identity? Yeah, there are definitely, you know, certain, there are certain kinds of uh, malware, malicious software that we, as we call it, um, that can do those kinds of things. They can do keystrokes, right? They can capture keystrokes. So when you go to put in your password, it's capturing your password. So even if it's a long and strong like it should be, um, you're, you're giving it away. Um, it could use your computer to generate uh, emails to everybody on your contact list that look like they come from Michael Kaiser, right? Um, so, uh, and they do come out of my inbox because they've taken it over. And that might uh, have my contacts be more likely to click on something that they shouldn't, right? So they try to get around some of the, 
you know, the fences that we've put up and some of the defenses we've put up around. So, so a friend has been compromised, and I've seen that happen. I've seen colleagues within the broadcast industry that I know and correspond with or maybe even work within the same company, and an email comes in. It's from somebody I know. It's a web. It's, a, it's an email address that I recognize, and, and I'm wondering why they're emailing me telling me that they discovered this great new weight loss product or how, how it is I can grow hair. At first, I feel insulted, and then I realize, wait a minute, something's afoot here. Yeah, you'll see that on, uh, on social networks as well. You'll see a friend request on Facebook from someone who's already your friend, right? That's usually a you know, pretty clear sign that their account's been compromised. And, and so that's what the, you know, the bad guys are doing. They're trying to compromise accounts for different reasons. But also back to the kind of spyware and the activity they can do, that means that they could be getting your, you know, your password when you try to log on to a bank account, right, or a credit card account or, some, or you know, an account where you can order things and have them shipped to you. So you know, they can just change the shipping address uh, where, where the item will be shipped to. So there's lots of different things they can do. Um, and then they can also use your computer. And these are unbeknownst to you now. You know, in the old days we tell people, Oh, if your computer's acting slow, um, you know, if you're getting a lot of pop-up windows, you're probably infected. Well, they've moved on from that because they realize that then they get caught. They can use it for something called a botnet. They can use your computer to start generating, you know, massive amounts of spam uh, to other people and or use it to attack other computers um, to uh, slow down networks or to attack other networks. You know, all kinds of things that no one really wants to be uh, involved in, um, and especially have their computer compromise. And, and there's another vulnerability here, and it's not just seniors, I think it's all of us. Uh, whether we get a message about uh, updating viable protection definitions or uh, updating our software and we're busy, it's like, oh, don't bother me now. We kind of click out of the message and ignore it, think we'll get to it later and never do. Um, e- even folks that maybe, and I think this may be uh, true of all of us, that uh, look at computers and say, gee, I just bought this five years ago. What do you mean it's outmoded? But, you know, people that are running, for example, XP, God bless Microsoft, as reliable as that OS was for a long time, if you're running an XP machine that no longer has support from Microsoft, you're vulnerable. So there's also perhaps a reality here that staying on top of things that are current, while to you feels like, oh, they're just trying to tell me, sell me stuff that I already have and don't need, there is a degree to which staying on top of having an active um, you know, antivirus software running, making sure that you've got the current OS with all the patches, and stay on top of that really can be the difference between a safe online experience and one that can be easily compromised. Yeah, we all have a shared responsibility to make sure that uh, we keep what we like to say, keep clean machines, right? Try and do everything you can to keep any device that you have connected to the Internet. Uh, and it's more than just people's PCs and laptops right now, and mobile especially is important as well. Keep them free from infections, right? Um, that's what we're talking about with malware. You get an infected uh, machine. And software updates are really one of the best defenses and one of the primary cybersecurity tools that everybody needs to do. It's, it's really quite that, that simple. And, you know, the good news here is um, when we started the National Cybersecurity Alliance back in 2001, I came in 2008, our first advice to everyone was update your antivirus software when you change the batteries in your smoke detector, right? That was a long time ago when everybody had dial-up and uh, there weren't that many viruses out there. Now any reputable uh, AV software, and we don't recommend any particular brands, but, you know, all the good ones, automatically update every 30, 60, 90 seconds, right? 
against a lot of these um, uh, malicious attacks. On this, in the mobile space, though, it's just as important, and people really need to make sure that their mobile phones, their smartphones, that they update the software on that, whether it's the operating system, um, whether they have you know, a lot of apps that they're running, um, they should definitely keep those up to date. And in addition, we always recommend that people uh, um, delete apps uh, that they're no longer using. And I think, you know, I, I know, you know, in my case, I often will uh, download an app and say, wow, this is the greatest thing, you know, since sliced bread. And then, uh, you know, a month later, I'm not using it all. And then I'm getting a little, you know, number by it or a number in a folder that's telling me I have to update it and I don't update it because I don't use it anymore. And you should just delete it, right? Just get rid of the ones that you're no longer using. And the other piece of advice, people see the the virus updates, um, the anti-malware updates, and they think, well, gee, why does Microsoft keep bothering me? Can't they get this thing fixed as quickly as they find the vulnerability and repair it? Some huckster out there manages to find another one and create yet another workaround. So, yeah, you, 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 there was a time when I guess you could say every six months, make sure you update it. These days, sometimes it's six times inside of a day that it becomes necessary. Uh, Michael, for folks that want to go a little bit deeper, folks that maybe you're looking for some resources um, to educate friends and family, maybe mom and dad, about uh, the vulnerabilities and what they need to do, the steps they need to take to better protect themselves from becoming a victim of online cyber-related crime, what resources are available through National Cybersecurity Alliance? Yeah, we have two websites that are really, uh, you know, provide a lot of information. One of them is stopthinkconnect.org. That's our a uh, really global campaign for cybersecurity education awareness. There's uh, tip sheets on a variety of topics there, um, you know, on mobile, on uh, talking to kids, on um, keeping your home secure, uh, IoT, a lot of different topics and a lot of different great materials. And then staysafeonline.org has some of those materials and some additional things about the activities that we engage in, like National Cybersecurity Awareness Month. But I also say to people there's a ton of great resources out there, um, you know, the Federal Trade Commission, FTC.gov, has amazing resources for folks. Most people who, you know, whether it's uh, whatever they're using, the, if they're using a, you know, antivirus software, that company may have great resources for them. So we're not, we're really resource agnostic. What we want people to do is go out and educate themselves and find out what they can do from whoever they trust. Uh, to get the information that they need to be safer online. And oftentimes you've got a grandchild, somebody that you know, a neighbor that's got some expertise on this. Don't uh, don't hesitate to get some advice. The most important thing is you need to be vigilant about this, and if you stay vigilant, you will stay safe online. StopThinkConnect.org. That's StopThinkConnect.org. Another great URL. Remember, is StaySafeOnline.org. StaySafeOnline.org. Michael Kaiser, Executive Director of the National Cybersecurity Alliance. Thanks so much for the update. Good information. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. It is perhaps just a generation or so ago that we argued in apologetics debates particularly that God said, hath God said. Well, today the debate is simply that God, meaning does he even exist? Nietzsche asserted a century ago that God was dead, suggesting at least at the minimum that at one time God did exist. But today we debate his very existence ever. A new book helps you address a lot of these questions, perhaps questions 
you yourself have struggled with, certainly questions that maybe you struggle with in answering for uh, friends as you share your faith. The book is called simply, Does God Exist? and 51 Other Compelling Questions About God and the Bible. Its author is a lead pastor from Life Fellowship Church outside of Charlotte, North Carolina, and the founder and host of the video ministry, The One Minute Apologist, Pastor Bobby Conway. Pastor Conway, great to have you on the program. Hey, it's good to be with you, buddy. Well, I guess these days, particularly with what we see going on in the world around us, whether we talk about politics or the spate of violence in particular, and a lot of it taking place in God's name or in Allah's name, and a lot of people get confused between the two, a lot of Christians really struggle to try to come up with these answers that will help satisfy uh, friends as they or co-workers as they share their faith. And in looking at your new book, I mean, it certainly isn't a 500-page tome, uh, you could almost practically memorize the entire book, and toward that degree, I just wonder if that was your intent. Well, what I did want to do is help uh, my readers to gain some confidence around curious questions that they may have or people whom they're engaging conversations with might have. And so what I did, basically, is I've got almost a thousand videos on our One Minute Apologist YouTube uh, ministry site where I interview world-leading philosophers and apologists, and then I do a lot of the questions myself. And I just thought to take, you know, 50 or so of those type of questions that I do in video format and then put them in written format. So I wrote that book to give people a tool of some of the questions that people are asking today. And what I like about the book, Pastor, is it is literally a book that you could memorize. I mean, you you could almost spend a few minutes with this every day and commit a lot of the answers uh, to memory. There, there's some give and take in here, questions to consider, uh, memory verses that, uh, that tie into uh, each of the questions, along with uh, information concerning the links to the accompanied YouTube videos that you've produced that I think really can help equip Christians for, as, as Paul told us, to be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within. Yes, and I also think that people want information, especially in this age, that is digestible, and I think that there is a place for uh, the tome, and I'm all about that. I read those myself. I think that it's good, though, for people to have a tool, and being a pastor, I have to be a pragmatician, uh, and I think that this is something that can serve as a tool whereby people can get together in small groups or in coffee shops, uh, or they can just have it as a resource manual to look up questions either about theology or worldview or sexual issues or some of the different things that we're facing right before us right now. Uh, one of the things that I like about your approach to this, so when I first picked up the book, I thought, well, we're going to expect to find some basic questions in there, sort of the questions of time and memoriam, that God, does God exist, what about the virgin birth, uh, uh, is Jesus equal to, to God, things of this sort that are kind of basic Christian theology. But you have not shied away from dealing with any of the contemporary questions, so to speak, of our day either. For example, I, I first read it and thought, did I read that right? Will there be sex in heaven? Uh, you, you don't shy away, shy away from any of these topics, do you? Well, I mean, the, the reality is, is people have these questions, and I think in the Church we need to say, hey, look, if we're sincerely striving to learn, it's okay to ask questions. Uh, and will there be sex in question? I mean, that's not uh, out of reason to ask that kind of question. Uh, will I still be married in question uh, in heaven? I mean, these are questions that, that people thought about. In fact, that Jesus was opposed uh, such questions 
a question. And we learned that, you know what, we're going to be, uh, you know, like the angels in heaven, neither given in marriage. So there's going to be a marriage on earth till death do us part. So there's not going to be sex in heaven, but I think that that's not anything for us to dread. It's hard to imagine as adults, a world where there cannot be intimacy uh, between a person that we love, but we can know in heaven that the purpose of sex here on earth is for mutual pleasure and procreation, and our ultimate pleasure will be found in God, and there will be no procreative reason for us to have sex in heaven. What's good, too, I think, about your approach to the book, Pastor, is that in addition to helping tackle questions that uh, we could run into day by day as we share our faith with others, there are also some very timely topics that, quite frankly, a lot of Christians struggle with themselves. They don't quite understand the answers, and we live in a society that not only promotes this sense of, of certainly uh, uh, theological pluralism, but also from the standpoint of wanting to be, quote-unquote, tolerant, uh, and yet we say, gee, how, how do I come about giving an articulate response to some of the more controversial topics. I mean, take, for example, the matter of marijuana use. Now, here in California, we're going to head to the ballot in November, not only decide who the next president will be, U.S. senator from California, but also decide whether or not we should follow in the footsteps of Colorado and legalize recreational use of marijuana. This is one of the topics that you've chosen to deal with. I discern between medical marijuana and uh, recreational use of marijuana. I grew up in California myself, and I've been clean since October 9, 1994. I got clean at my first semester at Chico State, of all places. And uh, I don't know if it's still the party school it was back in the, in the 90s. but It has a reputation. There. Yes, it does. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought quite the place to go and get sober. I went to an AA meeting October 9, 1994. And I've been clean ever since. And so I've smoked a lot of dope myself in California, so I'm not throwing uh, stones at those who, uh, who do. But I will say that I know back then a good hit of some green butt could get a high going. And with the THC levels where they are today, I just don't see how we can uh, maintain, uh, you know, temple care. The Bible talks about, you know, we're to honor our bodies, we're to take care of our temple, it kills brain cells. I think from a standpoint of medical use, I can see a real avenue for that. Suppose we were to wake up and read in a newspaper and we'd never heard about marijuana before, and we didn't have the negative connotations, and we saw scientists have found a leaf that can help those with cancer patients who are cancer patients to digest their food, to help them to gain weight, and to assuage them in the midst of their pain. I don't think we'd think anything of it because people use uh, many medications that are far worse right now than marijuana. So I can say I could see it being okay there, but just recreationally, I think that it's hard to make that case. If you've just joined our conversation, visiting tonight with the lead pastor from Life Fellowship Church outside of Charlotte, North Carolina, the author of the new book called Does God Exist? This and 51 other compelling questions about God and the Bible. It is a bite size, which is what I like about this. Um, a lot of people get put off. Questions arise, they don't know how to answer them, and they're too intimidated to uh, go out and buy a 500-page tome on the topic. And so as a result, they just sort of maintain their sense of ignorance. But it's hard to be effective when it comes to witnessing today and not be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within, as Paul said. Not be uh, prepared to engage in, in thoughtful 
reasoned give and take, and to be able to take a stand. And most importantly, not only be educated and equipped ourselves, but then share that knowledge with others as we share our faith. And that's a long way toward what this book uh, is is focused on doing. Newly published by We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of the conversation, deal with a few other hot topics of the day as our visit with Pastor Bobby Conway, author of Does God Exist? continues here on Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Helping you answer the big questions of the day, uh, perhaps for yourself, certainly for others as you share your faith, having a sense of uh, uh, solid discipleship where we are learned a bit. Uh, we are trained, so to speak, within the basics of apologetics is, is kind of, uh, unfortunately, passing away, meaning that fewer and fewer churches um, underscore the importance of this. And yet, I think really to be an effective witness in sharing our faith and also have a good sense of grounding in our own relationship with Christ, it's important that we have some of these fundamental answers, a fundamental understanding of our faith. And uh, the new book, Does God Exist?, and 51 Other Compelling Questions About God and the Bible goes a long way toward, in a very uh, direct fashion, answer many of those questions. Its author is our guest today, Bobby Conway. He is also the lead pastor of Life Fellowship Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. He's also authored other books and uh, is the founder and host, by the way, of the rapidly growing video ministry, The One Minute Apologist, which is, I guess, Bobby, if you just do a, um, a search in YouTube, all of the link will come up? Absolutely, yeah. Just type in One Minute Apologist. We have a channel in YouTube, or they can go to the oneminuteapologist.com, and they can learn more about the videos there. And this is really, I mean, I, I think of not just... Uh, new believers, but a uh, good refresher course for some of us that have been in faith for a lot of years, as well as an opportunity to get studied with a biblical perspective on some of the so-called hot topics of the day, which I know a lot of believers struggle with. I mean, for example, this issue of uh, transvestitism or sex change uh, has been a lot in the news lately, particularly with uh, uh, Bruce Jenner capturing a lot of headlines. And I know that when the topic comes up, other than uh, sharing a sense of uh, disbelief or uh, uh, frustration with the topic, many many Christians, I think, are just frustrated. They don't know how to answer. They don't know how to respond to when this debate or this topic is approached. It's too bad that uh, the Church has a reputation uh, for being bombastic at times. By and large, uh, the Christians that I come in contact are wonderful people, uh, humble people, but a lot of times they're not ready to engage in conversation. Uh, with people. Those who would say apologetics uh, isn't important uh, obviously uh, haven't been out sharing uh, with non-believers or engaging them with questions about their faith, because those questions will come up. And in in particular, this one on sex change, uh, this is a huge issue in our culture right now. And I do think that we should be looking for ways to exhibit compassion. I mean, I can't imagine what it would be like to feel trapped uh, with another gender inside of my body. Uh, at the same token, I think we can show a compassion. You know, I can't, you know, imagine what that would be like. I'm not trying to throw stones at you here. I'm just trying to be faithful to the way that I believe that God created us. And I believe that uh, the chromosomal structure cannot be changed through 
a sex change. Uh, our chromosomal structure reveals whether we're male or female. Now, there is an intersex condition that some would have where maybe they might have some you know, partial male and partial female body parts, and I can understand the situation like that where they might seek counsel and get some wisdom on how to be unified so they don't so that individual doesn't feel like they're half male, half female. That makes sense. But I do think biblically we should realize that uh, sex is not something that we can just uh, play with. It's des- we're designed by God with a certain gender. The other thing that I think believers should appreciate from a book like this is not only equipping them in terms of a, a better, more articul- articulate uh, apologetic approach to many of the hot topics of the day from a biblical perspective, but also some of the topics that kind of swirl within the church that oftentimes uh, we need to gain a deeper, more foundational understanding on. Uh, It is probably unlikely for the most part that the average non-believer is going to want to engage you in questions about the Trinity But we know that uh, modalism or uh, Trinitarianism within the church, there are corners where this is hotly contested and debated. And from time to time, I think at least from a good biblical foundation, from a discipleship standpoint, it's important that believers understand what the Bible actually has to say on topics that are very relevant to the Christian's faith, particularly in issues such as the Trinity. Sure, that's a good point, Craig, where we see that God is one in essence and three in person, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I think that there's a lot of confusion today, and I think that in my last book I wrote called Doubting Toward Faith, I wrestled with some of my own doubts and wrote about some of my own struggle with it and share how, you know, we're living in a melting pot culture of belief. We're like a nation without a mission statement. We're not what we once were. We're not sure what we're becoming, but in between, in this tweener space, it's great. And there's lots of questions, and we're experiencing what Jennifer Heck talked about, this idea of cosmopolitan doubt, where my belief's bumping up against somebody else's belief, and we're wondering, how can I know what I believe is really true? And I think that we need to help people to deal with these questions and with their doubts, and a lot of people are intimidated to share their doubts, because they're going to feel like they're an immature believer if they do. And I want to say, as a pastor and as an apologist, that in the absentee of certainty, there's always going to be room for doubt. The question is, which worldview closes the doubt gap the best? And me, as a Christian pastor, I can struggle with doubts, but I believe when I look at the case for the resurrection of Jesus, and when I think about our worldview compared to other worldview options, I believe Christianity is uh, the greatest worldview standing and offers the greatest amount of evidence for us. Um. Do we also have to uh, concede that there are some topics for which there's just not real clear direction within Scripture uh, that sort of uh, now we see uh, through a glass darkly uh, approach that, you know, there are certain mysteries, so to speak, that we do not fully comprehend and give believers a sense of relief that that's okay? I think so. I think it makes us uh, look. If somebody gets discipled, they're a brand-new Christian, and then they go, okay, I've been discipled, I've had my five hours of training, Uh, they're often ultra-dogmatic. They go out and they feel like they've they've read their Left Behind series, and they know how God's going to wrap the world up. (laughs) Look, the reality is, is we're going to go in and out of some of these doctrinal positions on age of the earth, or the timing of Jesus' return, or which translation to use, or whether or not one of the Calvinists are Arminian. And I think we need to give people some real freedom to think, because sometimes we can give people such a tight doctrinal list that then, if they're just thinking because they read another book, not trying to disobey God, just 
wrestling with the argument. They can feel like they're doing something wrong, and the reality is, is they're just thinking. And I think that's where we get back to, we need to love God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind, love our neighbors ourselves. As Christians, our faith is in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're keeping our faith there, and then we live it with a lot of flexibility, and we give each other a lot of grace, because we're splintering the church to death in the name of our pet particularities, and I think we need to loosen up a little bit. And I think that's a key point that you make, because there's also this perspective that says, listen, um, there are some doctrines, so to speak, that are going to constantly be open for debate. I mean, you know, upon baptism, should we sprinkle or should we dunk? I don't know. I mean, I, I think there's evidence to show, certainly from Christ's experience with it, that uh, the dunking is the way to go. That said, it certainly doesn't classify as a damnable doctrine, meaning that if you don't embrace it or believe it certain ways, uh, that, that you're going to be outside the confines of, 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 of so-called normative or or. Um, a historical Christianity. But there's also this notion that we can sometimes get so caught up in the minutia of some of these completely unwinnable debates that we we end up seeing our relationship with very Christ himself suffer, don't we? I just would love to see the church at large really grasp what you're saying right there, because if we could just get the beauty and the joy of learning. Yes, there's a corpus of theology that we're to believe, but the reality is, is we've got over 40,000 denominations. Uh, you know, uh, you can pit many of these great theologians that are our heroes, and they contradict each other on some of these viewpoints as well. That doesn't mean that undercuts our belief ultimately in the authority of Scripture. What it means is people are finite. And yes, there's one interpretation from God's perspective, but as humans, I believe, myself included, none of us walk around as perfect interpreters of Scripture. So that should create some humility in us that, you know what, we're going to do our best to show ourselves as workmen who are approved of studying the Word of God, but we're going to be humble with the way that we handle that with others as well. And in doing so, of course, being prepared to give an answer, to not only deepen your own relationship with Christ and understanding of your own faith, but then to be more effective communicator at discipling believers that you won to Christ, and certainly hope that's part of uh, your your life experience, and then, too, to be prepared to share your faith with others. This book goes a long way in a very easy fashion. It answers the question, does God exist? That and 51 other compelling questions about God, the Bible, and quite frankly, life in general, wrestling with a lot of the questions, contemporary ones, that we struggle with to this very day. Bobby Conway is the author of the new book, lead pastor of Life Fellowship Church, located just outside of Charlotte, North Carolina, graduate of Dallas Theological Seminary, great job on the book, newly published, by the way, by our friends at Harvest House and available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as through some of the usual suspects, Amazon.com. You can also get it through Pastor Conway's website, Bobby Conway, spell it just the way it sounds, Bobby Conway Online. Dot com. That's BobbyConwayOnline.com. And, you know, if you're looking for some quick, easy to nibble on and digest uh, and memorize content, not only the book, but also uh, we mentioned about his YouTube channel uh, that provides, what did you say, Bobby, over a thousand videos? Well, we're working close to a thousand. We've got about 900 right now, so almost a thousand different videos. And these are all called the One Minute Apologist that deals with just short bite-sized chunks 
of information on a whole variety of topics that, that very much mimic uh, what the book does. So you can check that out on YouTube by simply uh, doing a, a Google search. Go to YouTube and look for the One Minute Apologist. Again, the book, Does God Exist? And 51 Other Compelling Questions About God and the Bible, newly published by Harvest House. Our thanks to Pastor Bobby Conway for being with us tonight here on this edition of Lifeline. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved.